Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the University of Sheffield. Neither Roland nor I are quite sure where this title came from, Sex in the City, um, Sex being Socioeconomic Class. I blame him. I think he thinks it was me, um, but it is a bit silly. But what I want to do is to, to talk to you about the impact of inequality um, on local areas and think a little bit about what the research tells us about the mechanisms by which inequality creates poor health and social outcomes for populations and what can be done about it. Um, and a couple of weekends ago, I was down in Surrey with my co-author, um, Richard Wilkinson, who's also my husband, and we went to Surrey so that we could spend a weekend with his children and grandchildren. They live in the south, and so we thought we'd rent a house and spend time with them not too far from where they live because they've got a little baby and, and we wanted not to give them a long journey. And we stayed near this town, which is Hazelmere in Surrey, and on the Saturday morning we needed some milk and a guardian kind of people that really need a guardian every day. And so we went into this little town um, to buy some milk and a paper. And it was, it was lovely, really. There was a fish shop that looked like they'd had an interior designer come in and, and do it, you know. You could have eaten off the floor. And next to that, there was an artisan bread shop with this glorious smell coming out and loaves, beautiful loaves of bread, cost about five quid each. Um, and there was a cheese and wine shop. And on the corner of the high street, which is the shop right here, there's an arga shop, <laughs> full of argas. And it was all lovely and affluent. Not a poor person in sight. Not a small house in sight. Nothing scruffy. Nothing nasty. And it really upset me, actually. Because I do a lot of work these days in Bradford, um, in the poorest wards of Bradford, where we are um, putting together a new research study following families' lives, a birth cohort study. We've started recruiting into the study. We've got about 70 families so far. We'll end up with 5,000. And we've been working in Bradford for quite a long time. We have another study there which has 13,000 families in it. So we know quite a bit about people's lives, their neighbourhoods, how they're affected by the environment they live in. And it's just such a contrast. Now, if you live in the north, I think, if you live in Sheffield or Leeds or Bradford or Manchester or Newcastle or even York, you are exposed to and somewhat aware of poorer neighbourhoods, um, people's lives there. But in parts of Britain, you're not exposed to that at all. <coughs> you've, got, you've got no knowledge, no daily exposure of how the other half live. And when societies become deeply unequal and populations become segregated from one another's experience, then it's, it gets harder and harder to empathise across those divides, to feel true sympathy across them and to want to do things about it. So that inequality, breeding this segregation, actually breeds um, a lack of social cohesion and a lack of appetite to want to change things. Because if people 
not like you are so different that you can't even really understand their lives, why bother trying to help them? In the spirit level, um, our work looked at the effects of income inequality on health and social outcomes across different societies. We compared rich countries, we also compared the 50 states of the US. And our book sold surprisingly well because it's full of statistics and full of graphs, but they're all quite simple. And if you can understand this one, you can understand anything we've ever written, really. When income inequality increases, problems increase. And we showed that for mental illness, for life expectancy, for infant mortality, for educational performance, for social mobility, for levels of crime and levels of punishment. So we showed it for a whole range of outcomes. And I'm not going to take you through those today um, because it really is a simple message. More inequality creates more of those problems. What I want to do instead is to think about how that works in smaller areas and what the new research tells us about how those effects are created. And I used to not think that local areas, inequality in local areas, mattered that much. If we look at studies of income inequality and health, and that's a very large literature, there's well over 300 studies, the ones that measure income inequality at a national level, so they say what is the gap between the rich and the poor in the whole society, overwhelmingly um, find that greater inequality is related to worse health. And the same is true if we look at large areas, inequality across large areas. What's the gap between the rich and the poor in a US state, in a large region, in a big metropolitan area? And again, those studies overwhelmingly suggest that inequality is related to poorer health. But if you look at inequality within small areas, how rich are the rich in a neighbourhood compared to the poor in a neighbourhood, then you can see there are as many unsupportive studies as supportive studies of the link between inequality and poor health. Now, some researchers who perhaps um, don't think through really the um, implications of their work mean that this, this finding that you know, inequality within small areas doesn't matter, means that inequality in large areas doesn't matter, and inequality in states and regions doesn't matter, because they have disproven the income inequality health hypothesis. They haven't, of course. They've just sort of misunderstood what they're measuring. If we think of the poor areas in Bradford, um, where we're working currently, the people in those areas don't have poor health because of the inequalities in that electoral ward. They have poor health because they live in a deprived area in relation to society, in relation to their city and in relation to their nation. So it's not the inequalities within a neighbourhood or a community that matter, but how deprived those areas are in relation to how everybody else is doing. So I used to look at this kind of graph and think where I want to concentrate my efforts is sort of nationally. It's 
national governments who can set the tax rates. Who could say, yeah, we're going to impose an 80% tax on wealth, as Thomas Piketty suggests and Roland referred to. A national government can do that. They can raise the minimum wage massively if they choose to. They can um, impose austerity economics or do something different. And I felt it was very much at the national level that everything I wanted to see happen could happen. And I, I, I didn't really understand the capacity of local areas, local authorities, cities um, and communities to affect income inequality, certainly not at the societal level. I think I was very wrong to think that. I think what my experience over the last few years has shown me is that I can't gain any traction at a national level. I can try and I can vote and I can support parties that I think would do the kinds of things <coughs> I want to do at a national level. But it's very hard to kind of get any leverage and, and change happening at that level. Whereas across the country, we've seen a number of cities inspiringly set up fairness commissions. Sometimes they've called them something slightly different, but make a real effort to examine inequalities within their cities, to think about their impact, and to think about what they can do to ameliorate them. So that's been a real inspiration. Um, and I think has really helped to focus my mind on inequalities within cities, within local authority areas. And inequalities in cities do matter. This graph is looking at mortality rates for men of working age in 528 cities. And they're different colours for the different countries. The United Kingdom cities are the yellow dots. And you can see that in comparison to a measure of income inequality across the bottom, where these are the more unequal cities, and cities at this end are the more equal cities, that mortality rates are highly correlated with them. So inequalities within a city region, within a city area, do matter. And within some of our cities, the gaps in outcomes between the rich and the poor are huge between local areas that are deprived compared to local areas that are affluent. This picture, this chart is very well known. It's looking at um, life expectancy as you travel along the Jubilee line in London. So if you start out in Westminster, um, male life expectancy is 77.7, females 84.2, but as you travel across um, London from west to east, you end up, where are we, Canning Town, with male life expectancy six years lower and female life expectancy four years lower. And um, we heard a few moments ago about the 83 bus route through Sheffield, which is an, another really nice graphical way of showing the same thing that as you travel from the north down through the south, you see male life expectancy and female life expectancy rising. And these kinds of um, charts, I think, really help us to, to think about the real life outcomes. 
because life expectancy, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. It's like being sent to prison, isn't it, for like for the five years, for something you didn't do, to live in an area that has an average life expectancy five years lower um, than somewhere just down the road. Michael Marmot's latest book, The Health Gap, describes how in some areas of Glasgow, male life expectancy is worse than the average in India, despite the differences in the economic development of the two countries. So these are stark realities. And when we wrote The Spirit Level, we have this, a whole wealth of data on these impacts. But we didn't really have data that allowed us to explain how inequality affected people. We drew on experiments that psychologists have done that showed <coughs> that... Um, other people's judgments of us are very stressful. Those were lab experiments. We drew on experiments that showed that children's cognitive performance is affected how, by how they think other people are judging them. And also experiments that showed increased drug use in um, those of lower social status. But those were monkeys and not humans. We didn't have big population-based studies that looked at the things that you might think of as being on the pathway between income inequality and poor health and social outcomes. We theorised, you know, we believed that what we were seeing was an effect of greater social <coughs> distances creating an inequality between us that affects us psychologically and therefore affects our bodies, our minds, our emotions. And that anxieties about status and increased status competition must be the mechanisms. But we were speculating, and now we know. So this chart comes from two um, Irish researchers who looked at anxieties about status in European countries. And this line are the most unequal European countries, and this bottom line are the more equal European societies. And then looking at the level of status anxiety across the income distribution. So here are the poorest tenths of the population in each country, and here are the richest tenths of the population in each country. And at every level of income, there is more status anxiety in the more unequal societies. So inequality raises status anxiety and it raises it for everybody. We've also seen more research coming out looking at the mental health consequences of inequality. We had shown that levels of mental illness were much higher in more unequal societies, particularly depression and anxiety. Um, but now there are more studies of this kind showing higher levels of depression, for instance, in US states, another showing higher levels of schizophrenia in more unequal countries. And we're starting to understand that anxieties about status can make you react in two or three different ways. And one of those ways 
is to sort of give up. If life is really difficult, if the social ladder is very steep and the rungs very far apart, if status competition is heightened and anxieties are heightened, one response to that is to withdraw from the whole fight, you know, is to be depressed, to be anxious, to not engage in that cut and thrust of society. And there are psychologists who are making a really strong case for the evolutionary roots of our tendency to be depressed as re resulting from withdrawal <coughs> from a fight with others. And that depression is sort of um, a hangover, an evolutionary hangover of what we do when we withdraw from a physical fight with others. And the way depressed people can come across as you know withdrawn, um, rather flat affect, not engaging, is probably a reflection of that. So that's one thing that happens to people in very unequal societies. They go down, they go under, they're unable to cope, they withdraw from the competition and the struggle. But the other thing they can do <coughs> is to try and claw up. And we've seen a rise in narcissism over the period in which income inequalities have risen massively. These are data for the US states. And um, Zoe Williams, who's going to be here later, had a fantastic article in The Guardian last week about narcissism. And if you've not read it, um, check it out online. It's, it's quite enlightening. These data on narcissism come from a researcher in California, Jean Twenge, who has written a book called The Narcissism Epidemic that's really, um, it's really enlightening. And it's, it's full of stories that you can sort of laugh at. Um, like there's a bride who had her wedding cake made in the shape of her. Um, people who rent a crowd of paparazzi to follow them around um, so they can pretend they're famous. Um, a girl who wanted her street to be closed down um, and red carpeted for her to go to her high school prom. Her local city were having none of it. But lots of stories like that. And Jean Twenge points out that we used to not know how to measure narcissism. We used to measure what we thought was self-esteem and we couldn't figure out why it kept going up and up and up over time when actually we were seeing depression and anxiety rising over time. How could self-confidence, self-esteem be improving when so many more people were depressed and anxious? And what was wrong with our measures of self-esteem was that they didn't separate out healthy self-esteem from narcissistic tendencies. And if you have a healthy self-esteem, I guess you sort of have a realistic assessment of your own capabilities. You know what you're good at, you know what you're not so good at, you know what you can do, what you can manage. If you're narcissistic, you just think you're fantastic, whether you are or not. And actually, there's no link between narcissism and being fantastic. So narcissists, narcissists are generally incorrect about their own um, capabilities. And you, there's a thing called the Narcissism Personality Inventory, and you can take it online. So you go <coughs> at lunchtime or tonight, go and take the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. 
it's quite tricky, right? So there are these paired statements, I think there's about 20 of them, and you have to pick which one fits you best from each pair. And it's not easy. So there's one that says, um, I love to look in the mirror versus, you know, I really don't like looking at myself. Well, it's not that black and white, is it? You know, so if you're having a good day and hair's all right and all of that, you don't mind, but, you know, on a bad hair day, you might not want to. But you've got to, you've got to pick one or the other. Um, and you don't have to score perfectly on all of them not to be a narcissist or to be a narcissist. There, you know, it is a continuum. I fell down on one question because it said, do you think the world would be a better place if you were in charge? Right? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I do really. I would do one or two things, yeah? Just one or two things, and the world would be a better place. So I said to Richard, oh God, I'm a narcissist. I think the world would be a better place if I was in charge, and he still wouldn't. <laughs> he said, you've got no idea of the unintended consequences of, of your ideas, you know. Um, and actually, the paired statement that went along with that was, I'd actually be terrified to be in charge of the world, you know. So, yeah, grey areas a bit. But anyway, since psychologists figured out how to measure narcissism, we have seen this incredible rise. And in fact, the old measures of self-esteem, the Rosenberg scale of self-esteem, you can't use that with American college students anymore because they all score at the maximum. And although it's a little bit funny, it's also really sad because narcissists create quite a lot of pain for their friends, their families, their colleagues, the people around them. They're not pleasant people to be dealing with, working with, um, living with. And they're not generally happy people either. All kinds of other mental health problems do go along with narcissism. So this rise is really sad. And it seems to be just another way people cope with a competitive, individualized, anxiety-provoking, status-ridden society. You can go down, or you can claw up like this. And of course, there's a third way. There's always a third way. Um, drug and alcohol use is more common in more unequal societies. Um, I've just done a little study looking at gambling as well, and that is also related to high levels of inequality. So you try and mask the pain or cope with the pain through consumption of mind-altering substances or just stuff, stuff that makes you feel better. I put this up to remind me to talk about status consumerism. This is a trash bag with the Louis Vuitton logo on. Um, I don't know where you get them from, but you know, if you want a better class of luggage, I bet everyone in Hazelmere has got um, Louis Vuitton trash bags. Actually, you can go on eBay you know, and you can buy carrier bags from posh shops so that you can put your stuff in them and look like you shop at posh shops, but you've just got the carrier bag. You can just get about five for a couple of quid. Um, the more expensive the brand, the more expensive the carrier bag. But you can fake it if you cannot make it. But we've seen a um, couple of recent studies showing that inequality does affect status consumption. 
people in more unequal areas of the United States are more likely to buy high-status cars. Um, people searching for things on the internet are more likely to be looking for status goods in more unequal places. So this tendency to want to try and put a good front on it by what you own um, is another consequence of inequality. And I haven't got time this morning to sort of really talk to you about the consequences of that for sustainability and our transition towards more sustainable economies, but it's clearly an extra barrier created by inequality. Levels of trust are so much lower in more unequal countries. In more equal countries, about two-thirds of the population trust others. In more unequal ones, it's less than a fifth. Same pattern in US states. And that spills over into the ways in which people treat one another. And there's a great psychologist also in California. California seems to be stuffed with really good psychologists. Loads of great stuff coming up from there. But one guy whose name is Paul Piff does really interesting experiments and observational studies of people of high status compared to people of low status. And in one quite interesting study, I think he sent his graduate students out to watch at intersections and mark down which cars cut off other cars. That's the top chart. And also um, which failed to stop for a pedestrian crossing at a zebra crossing. And the students marked down the make and year of the vehicle. And then they were classified as well, whether they were expensive cars or cheap cars. And the more expensive the car, the more likely the drivers were to cut off other cars and not stop for pedestrian. Um, and the, he found other quite stark differences in behaviour between rich people and poor people. Rich people were less empathetic in experiments. They were more narcissistic. Um, they were more likely to steal um, or say they would steal in various experimental setups. They just weren't very nice. Um, and so there's evidence starting to show us how people behave in relation to one another across the social class divisions. We don't know yet if this is heightened by inequality, but I think we could imagine that it might be. We've been really lucky in the past few years. We've been travelling a lot, um, talking to people. This is... Um, South Africa, I think. Um, oh, no, this is Mexico City. Barbed wire, railings... Even in um, poor neighbourhoods, but particularly in rich neighbourhoods, people trying to keep other people out of their homes and areas. And of course, in the past, you used to have to defend yourself, your home and your castle, from the rich and the powerful who might come and grab stuff. But what people are defending themselves from now is the poor and the dispossessed and the powerless. Um, here's the same thing in South Africa but here they might actually shoot you um, as well. And they've got electric fences across the top and some very large dogs if you manage to get past the armed response. And then the same thing in Chile, um, where we were recently. <coughs> Everybody sort of fencing themselves off. And those societies are extremely 
unequal ones and are suffering the consequence. I'll finish up now. Um, I just want to pay tribute, really, to the work of various commissions and groups who are trying to make a difference, um, and also to point you to their reports if you don't know about them. The Living Wage Commission um, was an independent commission that made a business case, a moral case, and a social case for the extension of the living wage. There are now academic research studies looking at the effect of the London living wage on well-being of low-paid workers. Um, and of course, there are the fairness commissions. And I think, the last time I counted, there have been fairness commissions in about 17 cities. Um, you might know differently and be able to correct me. Um, but they keep being set up, and the Webb Memorial Trust has looked at their activities overall and um, drawn some conclusions about how effective they've been. And then this is um, a British Academy report for local authorities on things they can do to reduce health inequalities, <coughs> where we asked nine people... If you could do one thing, what would you do in a local authority to reduce inequalities in health? So there's lots of people, I think, taking action and paying attention and trying to figure out what to do. And this is my last slide, because I wanted to end on an optimistic note. We're back to Paul Piff and his studies of high-status and low-status individuals. He was always finding that high social class people behaved worse. But then he did some experiments where he gave people what he called an egalitarian prime. And prime is sort of psychological speech for getting people to think differently before they took part in the experiments. And all he did with the egalitarian prime was ask people to jot down on a bit of paper, I think it was five reasons why people should be treated equally. And when he did that, there weren't such big differences between people of low social class and high social class as when he didn't do that. This is on a measure of narcissism, but he showed it for various other pro-social behaviours and that sort of thing. So if we can get people to start thinking about fairness and social justice and greater equality, it might actually change not only their thinking, but their behaviour as well. And this gives me hope, because it suggests that everything we do that gets people thinking about these issues might actually change things. And it may seem like a very small step, but you know, even us being here in this room today and talking about these issues has a real potential for change. And certainly the notion that we would all go out from here and spread the word and engage people um, across political divides, across class divides, across any other social divides, we might actually change the way people think and behave. Um, I want to thank you all very much for listening and for inviting me today. And I'm sorry I won't be able to stay beyond the panel discussion. I have to go to Sweden, which talking in Sweden is like having a warm bubble bath because they do so well on equality and health that they're really happy to see you. It's a lot easier than giving a talk in America, where they're the bottom of every chart, or even in the UK, where we don't do so well. But thanks for your time.
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the University of Sheffield.